As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind beggar was sitting beside the road. When he heard the noise of the crowd going by, he asked, what was happening? They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is going by. So he began shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet, the people in front of him yelled. But he only shouted all the louder, son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and he ordered that the man be brought to him. As the man came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, he said, I want to see. And Jesus said, all right, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And instantly the man could see. And he followed Jesus, praising God. And all who saw it praised God with him. Now all this went down 10 days before Jesus rose from the dead. Just 10 days. And Jesus was actually on a journey. He was headed from the city of Jericho to the city of Jerusalem. And we're going to take a look at like a bunch of stuff that happened between tonight and next Tuesday night in the last 10 days of Jesus' life. Because I think when we look at what someone does with their last moments, who knows they're about to die, then we're going to be able to see so much of what they value. Like, what are Jesus' priorities? And I think the last 10 days really reveal that to us. So, point one, Jesus is the one who makes time for everyone who calls upon him. Maybe you feel like everybody else passes you by. Maybe you feel like everybody else is too busy or doesn't have time for you or thinks you're not the right kind of person, but Jesus sees you and he stops for you. And he listens for you. He listens to your story, your hurt, your heartache, your situation. He listens to who you really are. And even if it feels like everybody else does not have time, Jesus has time for the cool and the uncool, for the lovely and the unlovely, lovely, for the popular and the unpopular, for the healed and for the broken. There is none for whom Jesus is too busy. He has time for the depressed and the lonely and the unknown and the one who hides from everything. And so Jesus is traveling, right? He's on this journey. He's going from the city of Jericho to the city of Jerusalem. And he's going on this journey to Jerusalem because it's time to celebrate the annual Passover celebration. And this is what Jewish people have done for thousands of years, ever since Moses and the plagues and the and the pyramids and the blood on the top of the door. And the angel said to Moses, like, put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And then everybody, it's this whole crazy tradition that, that God gave the Jews. And they've been doing it for thousands of years. And so every good Jewish person heads to Jerusalem this time of year. And so Jesus, being a Jewish rabbi, is coming and he's headed to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover celebration. And he's walking And now thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jews are walking. They're they're coming from all the villages, all the countryside, and they're all converging on this road headed to Jerusalem. And we have a picture of this road because it's so shocking. And there are certain points on this windy trail, it's only about two feet wide. This is the literal road from Jericho to Jerusalem that Jesus traveled in the day, still there today. And there are thousands of people. So imagine a traffic jam 
on foot. And, and you're just traveling with these people and you're kind of stuck with these people going up the hills and down the hills as you wind your way from Jericho to Jerusalem. And this is what Jesus did every year from when he was 12 until the last year of his life. And he says he continues down up this road and down this road. He comes to a shortcut and he hears, he knows this is a shortcut and he can cut through the town of Bethany. And if you cut through the town of Bethany, it saves a little bit of the trip. And so Jesus and his disciples decide, we're going to cut through Bethany. We're going to try to get a little bit ahead of the crowds here. And when he gets there, he finds out that his close friend Lazarus has died. And, and so he's walking through and he, and he looks around and he sees dear close friends, Martha and Mary, Lazarus' brother, or brother, their, Lazarus is their brother, they're the sisters, and they're bawling. I mean, their brother just died. They knew Jesus could heal them. Jesus didn't come in time. Now their brother's dead. And Jesus is in this crowd of people. They're all making their way through the shortcut to Jerusalem. And Jesus stops by Lazarus' grave, right? And he just kind of does this crazy thing where he raises them from the dead. No big deal. This zombie guy gets up out of the grave, wearing grave clothes, and thousands of people witness it. Like they straight up saw it because they're on this little path walking by. And now they're walking together and the blind guy is in the crowd and the undead Lazarus guy is in the crowd and everybody's taking selfies with Lazarus and posting him on Instagram and the event is like spreading like wildfire. And everybody's saying like, hey, did you, were, you, were you here when Jesus healed the blind guy? Because that was like a couple miles back and they're telling the story. I'm like, no, no, I didn't hear that one. But, but, we're, but did you see when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? Now that was crazy. And so the story's just spreading and everyone's hearing the story as thousands and thousands of people are making their way to Jerusalem. And that brings us to the second truth about Jesus. And it's this, Jesus is the one who has the power to raise the dead. He is the power to raise the dead. Jesus can raise dead stuff in our lives. Maybe our hope feels dead. Maybe our relationship feels dead. Maybe our family feels dead. Maybe our hopes for a summer job to actually make some money feels dead. Whatever. But we have things in our life from moment to moment where we're like, man, I just, I just don't think it's going to happen. Where we feel defeated, where we feel like something's dead. Not only does Jesus have the power to raise dead things, he literally is the power over death. The Bible says he is the resurrection and the life. That's different than he has power of resurrection and life. He is it. And he's willing to bring it into any dead thing that we have going on in our lives. Jesus is willing to bring his resurrection life. So Jesus is in Bethany, just raised Lazarus from the dead. Everybody's seen it. Everybody's talking. Everybody's posting. And now the whole crowd continues to press. They're in a hurry. They've got to get to Jerusalem by a certain day. And they head up the Mount of Olives. And Jesus stops there, Luke chapter 19, we're picking up the story. As he came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into the village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So essentially, Jesus sends two disciples ahead to commit grand theft donkey. He's like, just go ahead and go 
it, steal the donkey, and tell him the Lord needs. It's in the Bible. So the disciples do that. They get the donkey, they lay their coats on it, and, and Jesus gets on the donkey. And there's the temple and Jerusalem. They're coming around this corner on the Mount of Olives, and it's the first time you can see down in the valley all of Jerusalem, the massive holy city that the, the Jewish people treasure so much. And you can see the temple, and you can see everything kind of unfold for the very first time. And this temple is beautiful. It's like world-renowned. It's one of the most impressive creations on the planet, the most impressive buildings on the planet in this era, and is built by King Herod. And the, the Jewish people are so proud of this temple. And so as they come around, there's like grandmas crying. I mean, everybody's just like taking pictures. This is a big deal. Not really. There's no cameras, guys. Everybody's so excited about the temple. They're, they're pumped to see it. It's a beautiful, like magical, amazing moment. And then you see this crazy concept all around the temple of people camping. Because this is the olden days, right? And so there's not hotels. And so Jerusalem normally has about um, 50,000 people at this time in history. That's how big the city is. So it's like the size of Grand Junction. 50,000 people. But during Passover week, it grows to 150,000 people. Okay? So this is like the temple, country jam, all around it without the beer. That's what I want you to picture, okay? Country jam going down except no drunk naked people. Just a lot of tents, a lot of camping, a lot of crazy going on, and they're all around the temple. And so Jesus is coming around the Mount of Olives on the stolen donkey, looking down. Grandmothers are crying. They're seeing the beautiful temple. It's this impressive moment, but right next to the temple is something called the Fortress of Antonia. And this is the scorn of the Jewish people. This is the place where the Roman soldiers live. Now, all of Israel has been conquered by Rome in this era, and they're pissed about it, okay? This is not acceptable to the Jewish people. They're very angry. They feel defiled. They, they hate their oppressors. They're hoping that Jesus will actually kick out Rome is kind of what they're hoping for. But so they're coming down. They see the temple, and then they see just right next to the temple, which the Romans built that guard palace there basically to piss them off. Okay, right next to their temple, kind of touching their temple, just to be like, we're in charge and not you. And so they're coming around. Jesus is seeing all this unfold. He's riding his donkey. It's this impressive moment, and the desert air is hot, and it's filled with excitement, and everyone's super pumped, and it's this reality of like the Jewish celebration, the big high holiday, and then the Roman occupation, like right there in their face. It all happens on this day. And this day, we call it Palm Sunday, right? Jesus is coming down, and, and people put their coats down on the palms down. And, and right now, we would call it Palm Sunday. But the Jews, it wasn't called Palm Sunday because it's literally making Palm Sunday while this story is being told. So they would have called it Lamb Selection Day. And what Lamb Selection Day for a Jewish family was this. It's like the equivalent of picking out your Christmas tree, but you have to do it on a certain exact day. So 150,000 people are simultaneously picking out a lamb at a farm. So Christmas tree farm except with lambs. And lambs are running all around and they're like, bah, 
and your kids are there, your wife, everybody's there, right? And your kids are like, oh, I pick Lammy. And the, and the lamb's like, I'm adopted. And you're like, not really. Because in a little while, the lamb's going to die. And that feels creepy and morbid to us. But this is the tradition of, the, of these people for thousands of years. Is they, they know what's going to happen. And so they're all hurrying into the city to try to pick out their special lamb that later is going to. And it's a big deal. It's very crowded. It's sweaty. It's intense. Now, why do you think Jesus picked Lamb Selection Day to arrive in Jerusalem. Like he could have picked any day, he could have been there two days earlier, but instead he arrives, and he arrives coming down the hill on the, on the donkey, right in the moment. What is he saying by arriving on Lamb Selection Day? Do you remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus? When he baptized him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So I think Jesus is coming in to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You all don't need to pick out a lamb anymore. I'm here to take away the sins of the world. That is why I came to Jerusalem for that very purpose. So I think Jesus is saying, I'm the one who offers myself for the sins of all the world. He's deliberately setting this up on purpose. And Jesus is saying, I'm here to offer myself for the sins of the world. Now, he didn't have to do that. He's God. So he could have been like, yo, angel, by the way, I need you to die on this cross tomorrow. And that's how I'm going to forgive all the people of their sins. He could have changed the rules. He could have went, Eve, Adam, do over. I'm just going to make Steve and Maria, and we're going to try this again, and hopefully they don't eat the apple. I mean, he could have done anything he wanted. But he said, when Adam and Eve sinned, he said, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to offer myself for the sins of all of mankind. I'm going to do it. He, he chose to do that. And in doing so, he's telling us something about himself. He's saying who he is. Romans chapter 3 says, for everyone has sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sins. And people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus was sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. So it's the blood of Jesus, guys, the blood of Jesus that initially saves us, but also the blood of Jesus that continues us in this friendship with God that we have because of Jesus. I want to continue on to Luke chapter 19 again, continuing that same story. So it says, when Jesus reached the place on the road, when he started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the miracles they had seen. So this word, began to shout. So apparently, there's thousands of people on the road. They've seen Lazarus raised from the dead. They've seen the blind guy. They've heard the stories the last few days. They've come around the corner. They've seen the temple, but somehow they're still a little bit quiet. There's not that much excitement somehow in the crowd. They're kind of muffled. But something happens where all of a sudden now they began to sing and shout. And I'm wondering, like, why weren't they doing it earlier? 
Why wasn't there a big old celebration of people like, yeah, Lazarus risen from the dead. This is so cool. Why weren't they like yelling? I think they were afraid to yell because right where they were coming in was like the Roman soldiers. And normally about 500 Roman soldiers lived in that fortress we were talking about. But at Passover, they quadrupled that number because Rome wanted to make sure there was no uprising during Passover. And so right where they're coming down, there's a lot more Roman soldiers just waiting to see if there's going to be some kind of rebellion. So up to this point, they're quiet. But something happens where all of a sudden they're like, we can't contain it anymore. The mixture of the miracles, seeing what Jesus had done, they come around the corner, they see the temple, all this stuff. They see all of Israel camping around the temple and all of a sudden, praise just starts leaping forth from their lips. And they're like, we have to celebrate God. So kings made this kind of paraded entry all the time in Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem's the capital city. They had kings for centuries, generations of kings, and they'd go off to war in the spring, and then they'd come back, and they would literally come back this exact road down into Jerusalem, and they would always be on a freshly washed and polished steed, you know, they'd come down, and they would look impressive, and they'd have giant banners that would announce that how many thousands of enemies the king had killed. And so it was this huge Braveheart moment after war every time. And so kings made this type of entrance on this exact road. So when we see Jesus coming down the road, he, it, it's very anticlimactic because he's riding a donkey instead of this majestic war horse that everyone would have expected. Everyone would have expected the king to come on the best horse, but instead the king comes on the most humble animal known to man in that era, this like awkward donkey. It's a donkey that's never been ridden, so it's like clumsy and tripping and, and not smooth. And all the other kings, they always come on this steed with like white flowing hair and like gorgeous horse muscles popping everywhere. And, and it's this impressive moment. And then there's Jesus and it's like a contrast of, that was awkward. Like, didn't they have any better like rental horses at Enterprise? You had to get the Prius. Like it doesn't fit. It's like rolling up at the Oscars and there's stretch limo after stretch limo. And here comes Brad Pitt on a rusty Schwinn 10 speed bicycle and you're like, uh, that was weird. That's what Jesus was doing here. It was weird. He's coming in on a donkey, awkward donkey, tripping weirdly down the hill instead of trying to look cool. They expected like a king of war. They expected this powerful lion of war, but instead Jesus came as the lamb of God. They expected a political leader. They wanted somebody to th overthrow Rome politically and like defeat them and, and let Israel be independent again historically, but instead they got a spiritual leader. But all of a sudden, 
it's recorded that, 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 that suddenly they began to sing and shout. And the book of John explains it the best. John chapter 12, it says, they took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, which means God saves. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And they're waving these palm branches, right? And they're setting them on the ground. And in our day and age, we read that and we're like, okay, weird. Like, probably palm branches because that's all they had. There was a deserted road. There wasn't a lot to choose from. They went with palm branches. False. Palm branches to Israel are like the American eagle to us. It was a symbol of independence and freedom. It would be like us lining the runway of Putin's Russian president, right, with eagle feathers. That's what they're doing here, right in the face of Rome. They're, they're like, the symbol of a palm branch is the symbol of freedom, symbol of independence. When, when Jesus' people were a free nation, they put palm branches on their money. It was like the stamp of independence. And so they're lining this road that the king is coming down with symbols of independence. They're making a statement to Rome. They're saying, this is our king. And the Roman soldiers, quadruple the normal force, are right there watching it. And so then Luke 19, verse 39, it says, but some of the Pharisees, and that's the religious leaders of the Jewish people, were among the crowd. Obviously, they're heading to Jerusalem, right? So they're among the crowd, and they, they say, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. Why do they want to rebuke the followers? Because they're afraid of Rome, right? They're afraid of those soldiers right down there. And Jesus responds to their request, and he knows their request is made out of jealousy and anger. And so he says, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. You want me to sh shut them up? Jesus says, fine. But then get ready, because then all of creation is going to erupt in praise and celebration to me. We are created to recognize that Jesus is our king. And so whether we know it or not, these people were in a position where they're like, we have to praise. We have to acknowledge who Jesus is. And that brings me to my fourth truth. Jesus is the one who's worthy of all of the worship. We serve a king who is worthy of worship. He forsook a throne in heaven to come down among us. He stepped out of time and eternity. He undertook humanity. He did all of these things not to be political, but to be spiritual. Not to save us from a nation of Rome that doesn't even exist anymore, but to save us from oppression in our own hearts. To save us from the weight of our own sin. And Jesus couldn't stand the thought of losing us all for all eternity. And so he decided to do something about it. And Easter is about a little over two weeks away. And it's easy for us to show up in a couple weeks on Easter and be like, oh, yay, Jesus rose from the dead. And I got some peeps. And this is a great day. There's free candy on the kitchen table. Right? It's just, and we forget if we're not careful. And so that's why this week and next week we're spending this time like really looking at what did Jesus do? What did Jesus say with the last days of his life? How, how does what he did on the cross fit into history and into us? 
And so Jesus goes through this huge celebration, the triumphal entry. He arrives into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, whatever you want to call it. And within seven days, he will be arrested. He will be convicted of a crime he didn't commit. He'll be brutally beaten. He'll be sentenced to death. He'll be crucified, executed, buried, and rose again. This is about to be a busy seven days for Jesus. He's got a lot going on. But before all of that happens, he does something very specific. He's celebrating Passover in Jerusalem. He's hiding amongst the crowds, being incognito, really. And on the fourth day, on Thursday, he gathers his 12 followers together. And he brings them to a private upper room. And he begins to share with them the Passover meal, which is a very specific meal in Jewish history. But he begins to prepare this special meal. And he begins to talk about what the meaning of this really is. And the Bible records that moment in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it says this, on the night he was betrayed... The Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. He broke it into pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took a cup of wine after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. And so Jesus is in this room, his closest followers, they're celebrating this meal together. And Jesus knows it's literally his last meal between like ever on the planet. And so instead of just like pounding the food, it's this deeply symbolic thing where everything means something. And Jesus takes the bread and just bread and he's like this is my body and he's like it's gonna be broken for you and everyone's like what broke what? who would hurt you Jesus you're raising dead people you're healing blind people this doesn't even make sense like you're so famous and you're so popular like what and the disciples are sitting there at the table and they're hearing this conversation and they're listening to Jesus saying he's gonna be broken and they're probably thinking good because then you'll raise yourself from the dead or you'll like kill everybody who's bad or like they can't understand yet but Jesus is like in the next few days this is what's going to happen my body is going to be broken and even though he says it they totally do not get it at all and then he goes on to say and my blood is going to be shed And the Bible lets us know that without the shedding of blood, there isn't forgiveness to sins. And so Jesus is trying to tell him, hey, I'm I'm not this political power. I'm not the king ready to overthrow Rome. I'm, I'm not political. I'm spiritual. I'm here to overthrow oppression in your soul. And he's trying to tell him this through this symbolism of this meal. And blue team's coming around and they've got elements, symbols, of this very meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. They, and I want you each to take a piece of bread and a grape, and we're gonna take them together and we're gonna think about this last week of Jesus' life and what he was going through and what he was doing. And when we gather together again next week, we're gonna walk through like the steps from this last meal to 
the garden to the betrayal to the beating to the execution to the death to the resurrection how do we know Jesus really rose from the dead we're going to get into that even the science of it but as the elements are coming I want each of us to take one grape and one piece of bread just like on that night at that last meal Jesus gathered with his disciples and each one took a small piece of bread and each one took a cup of wine, but y'all are underage, so a grape. And what he did was tried to help them understand what was gonna happen. And even now, 2,000 years later, it's hard to get our brains around what this really means. It means we have a God that so fiercely loved us, so fiercely loves us that he valued us over himself, that he's willing to lay down his life for us. That's what this bread means. And Jesus, right now in this room, this group of people, we, we are grateful that you loved us that much, that you pursued us that much. Let's, we're thankful for that, Jesus. We thank you for it right now. In your name we pray. And let's take the bread together. your shed blood Jesus that you would be God himself and yet allow yourself to be killed at the hands of your creation mind blowing thank you for spilling your blood on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to spill our own thank you for your forgiveness your mercy your healing in Jesus name let's take of the grape together as we think in our minds over the next couple weeks leading up to Easter, not just fast forwarding to a holiday, but really thinking about what it means. We ask that you would show us yourself. That you would show us the depth of your love, the truth of who you really are, that you would reveal yourself to us as God, as Savior, as father, as friend, as all the aspects of who you are. We ask for your blessing on each one in this room tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the 4640 Student Center Podcast. For more information on what's happening in 4640, you can check us out on social media and at our website, 4640gj.com. Service times are Tuesday and Wednesday nights. Hope to see you there.